you all. Please turn with me to the Gospel of Luke, chapter 11. Luke, chapter 11. I'm going to preface this sermon by saying, first of all, it's going to be topical, which is a little bit out of the ordinary for me, but I believe it's good to do sometimes. The second thing is I'm going to quote quite heavily. And the reason why I'm going to do this is because there's so much riches to be gained from our spiritual forefathers in their thoughts on prayer that I want to share some of those with you. Luke chapter 11, verse 1. And it came to pass, as he was praying in a certain place, when he ceased, that one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray as John also taught his disciples. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you for your word. Father, I am but a frail man. Please help me to deliver this message today. Father, grant us your Holy Spirit to convict us, to sanctify us, to equip us, to encourage us, to lead us, to guide us, Please bless this sermon. Lord, if you do not work, these are but mere words. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Lord, teach us to pray. This reveals one of the aspects of the life of Christ that stood out most to his disciples. They heard him preach many times, and we don't hear Lord, teach us to preach. He does many miracles. They don't say, Lord, teach us to do miracles as you do them. But his prayer life stood out to them so much that they said, Lord, teach us to pray. R.C. Sproul said they understood that there was a connecting link between the awesome power that Jesus manifested and the intense prayer life to which he gave himself. The disciples were familiar with Jesus' habit of withdrawing from time to time to go into a desolate place and spend long periods with his father. They made the connection in their minds between the intimacy of Jesus' prayer life and the power of his ministry. Before he entered into his ministry, he spent a long period of time in the wilderness fasting and praying. And he would often go out and be alone with his father in prayer. This was his pattern. Question. Is your prayer life such that those who are closest to you notice the importance and priority of prayer to you? I'm afraid that for many, prayer is not very important. Dr. Sandlin said, It appears as though an entire generation of Christians has emerged that has been educated little in prayer, rarely prays, expects few answered prayers, gets few answers, lives largely unbelieving and prayerless lives, and looks on prayer as at best a highly formal and stylized ritual. There is nothing whatsoever Christian in this trend. Prayer is one of the greatest gifts that we have been given as children of God. One of our greatest privileges, but probably one of the most neglected, both individually and 
corporately. So first, we often neglect prayer as individuals. But the great men we read about in church history were men of prayer. Leonard Ravenhill put it this way, No man is greater than his prayer life. The pastor who is not praying is playing. The people who are not praying are straying. We have many organizers, but few agonizers. Many players and payers, few prayers. Many singers, few clingers. Lots of pastors, few rustlers. Many fears, few tears. Much fashion, little passion. Many interferers, few intercessors. Many writers, but few fighters. Failing here, we fail everywhere. Spurgeon said, prayer has become as essential to me as the heaving of my lungs and the beating of my pulse. Do we feel that way? J.C. Ryle said, a man's state before God may always be measured by his prayers. John Knox used to say he wondered how a Christian could lie in his bed all night without rising to pray. And it was reported that Mary, Queen of Scots, said, I fear the prayers of John Knox more than all the assembled armies of Europe. Dear friends, this does not mean that we can't have a full night's sleep. I don't want you to look at these things and say, I'm just a failure. I need to be doing this or or I'm not spiritual enough. That's not the point. The point is this, the priority of prayer. I I want you to look at these men, to look at these examples throughout history, to look at these examples in, in Scripture And not feel condemned, but to feel encouraged. That there's so much more that we can do. There is so much more to the Christian life. There's so much more we can accomplish if we would invest ourselves in prayer. Joseph Lyon once wrote to a friend, Though I am apt to be unsettled and quickly set off the hinges, yet methinks I am like a bird out of the nest. I am never quiet until I am in my old way of communion with God. Do you understand what he is saying? Do you yearn to be alone with God in prayer? Can you say with a hymn writer, And since he bids me seek his face, Believe his word and trust his grace. I'll cast on him my every care and wait for thee, sweet hour of prayer. Is prayer sweet to you? Or is it a burden? Yes, sometimes prayer is hard, but even when it is difficult, we must prioritize it. Joel Beakey says, it is easy to pray when you are like a sailboat gliding forward in a favoring wind, but you must also pray when you are like an icebreaker smashing your way through an Arctic sea one foot at a time. No matter what, keep prayer your priority. But some of us resolve to prioritize prayer, don't we? We have great intentions, but whenever we get busy, what happens? Prayer is one of the first things to go. This was not the case with Luther, who once said, I have so much scheduled for tomorrow that I must pray for, that I must rise an hour earlier to have an extra hour alone with God. That is what it looks like to prioritize prayer. Not, I have so much to do tomorrow that I'm going to skip my morning prayer. 
But now I have so much to do tomorrow that I'm going to arise earlier so that I can make sure that I spend more time in prayer because of all of the things I need to do. I could go on and on with examples. Examples of pastors and, and other men. John Welsh, the, the son-in-law of John Knox, would in the middle of the night be, be in a room alone by himself praying, and his wife would, would come to the, so to the door and say, John, honey, come, come back to bed. And he says, I can't. I have 3,000 souls to look after, and I know not how it is with some of them. That's how many people were in his congregation, and he would pray for them one by one. The priority of prayer. But most importantly, Jesus was a man of prayer. I've already mentioned how it was his custom to go alone, be by himself in a desolate place with his father. This was his pattern of living. Before he chose his disciples, before he entered into his public ministry, he always prefaced things with prayer. Dear friends, if Jesus needed to do that, how much more do you and I? But perhaps someone will say these are exceptional men. What about those of us who are not reformers and Puritans or even preachers? Spurgeon tells a hypothetical story where a certain preacher whose sermons converted men's by scores received a revelation from heaven that, one of the, that none of the conversions was owing to his talents or eloquence, but all to the prayers of an illiterate lay brother who sat on the pulpit steps pleading all the time for the success of the sermon. And then he says to preachers, it may in the all-revealing day be so with us. We may discover after having labored long and wearily in preaching that all the honor belongs to another builder whose prayers were gold, silver, and precious stones while our sermonizing, being apart from prayer, were but hay and stumble. Dear friends, do you pray for the sermons here to be effective? Are you depending upon frail men, frail preachers? This is, this is not just up to the study of the pastor, the study of the preacher, but, but we need to be praying that God would bless these messages, that God would make them effective in converting the lost and effective in sanctifying those who belong to him. That the sermons ought to be steeped not only in the prayers of the pastor, but the prayers of the congregation. In his confessions, Augustine spoke of his grief and weeping for the mother, now gone from my sight, who for years had wept over me that I might live in God's sight. And he spoke of his mother, saying, When I was cleansed, the streams of my mother's eyes should be dried with which for me she daily watered the ground under her face. Young Augustine was an immoral man, living with a woman outside of marriage at the age of 16. And his mother had been earnestly asking the bishop to help her in winning Augustine to Christ. And the bishop responded, Go now, I beg you, it is not possible that the son of so many tears should perish. And we know God answered her prayers for Augustine's salvation. But would someone say that of us? 
There's no way your kids would perish the way you weep and mourn and pray over their souls. Well, obviously, we know that that's not accurate because it doesn't always work that way. But, but, it, sh- but it ought to be said of us so that that is the case. When people look at us and they see our prayer lives, they should be able to say, there's no way that God is not answering their prayers. Look how they cry out to God constantly, day and night. But it's not just individual prayer that is neglected, is it? Prayer is neglected in many churches today. I would venture to say in many circles, prayer meetings are essentially extinct. They don't do it anymore. They, they, they have a, a mid, if, they, if they have a midweek service, it's not a prayer meeting. And when we do have prayer meetings, it is not well attended. But the question is this. Is this a bad thing? Spurgeon said, believe me, if a church does not pray, it is dead. He says, when weeknight services are badly attended, farewell to the life of godliness. It it very much weakens us all in our prayers when our numbers decline. And whenever people come to despise weeknight services, be sure of it. Farewell to the vital power of godliness. For weeknight services are very, very much the stamp of the man. Any hypocrite will come on a Sunday, but a man does need to take some interest in religious services to be found mingling with the people of God in prayer. And we know from the book of Acts that the early church, which was vibrant and thriving, prioritized corporate prayer. Acts chapter 2, verses 40 to 42. And with many other words, he testified and exhorted them, saying, Be saved from this perverse generation. Then those who gladly received his word were baptized, and that day about 3,000 souls were added to them. And they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship in the breaking of bread and in prayers. Dear friends, you know the story in Acts chapter 12 when an angel broke Peter out of prison. Do you remember what the church was doing at that time? Acts chapter 12, verse 5. Peter was therefore kept in prison, but constant prayer was offered to God for him by the church. And once the, and once the angel helped him escape, what do we read? Verse 11, now when Peter had come to himself, he said, Now I know for certain that the Lord has sent his angel and has delivered me from the hand of Herod and from all the expectation of the Jewish people. So when he had considered this, he came to the house of Mary, the mother of John, whose surname was Mark, where many were gathered together praying. The early church loved and prioritized corporate prayer. It has been recorded in these pages for our benefit, for our example. I love what Thomas Watson says about this event. He said, the angel fetched Peter out of prison, but prayer fetched the angel. Dear friends, how do we compare to Jesus, to the early church, and to saints throughout history when it comes to both private and corporate prayer. This is a humbling thing to consider. And I have a specific concern for those of us in the Reformed tradition. I once heard of a man who refused to pray because he believed that God was sovereign and had already determined everything. 
Now, in our Reformed circles, we would not say that. But the question is, do we live that way? Do we view God's sovereignty as a reason to take everything to him in prayer? Or do we use it as an excuse not to pray because we know God already knows and he's in control? Ask yourself this question. If someone followed you around for for one day to listen to your prayers, would they say this is a man or a woman who believes in a sovereign God who answers prayer? Dr. Sandlin said, I've always found it strange that Arminians who deny the high sovereignty of God often pray with the greatest fervor and expectation. While Calvinists who affirm the high sovereignty of God are often languid and unbelieving in their prayers. It would seem to me that if you believe God is sovereign enough to tear down every stronghold, to destroy every obstacle, to convict every sinner, to provide every need, and that no one and nothing can thwart him, that you would ask him to do precisely that. Calvinist, he says, should be the fiercest prayer warriors in the world. The sovereignty of God should be like fuel and motivation for our prayer lives. Dear friends, are we fierce prayer warriors? We ought to be. I want to spend the rest of our time this morning answering a question. Since we have a sovereign God who hears us, and loves to answer prayer, how then should we pray? And I'm going to give you nine ways we should pray. Number one, we ought to pray earnestly. James chapter 5, verse 17. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed earnestly that it would not rain, and it did not rain on the land for three years and six months. These two words, prayed earnestly. He says, Elijah prayed earnestly. Both of those words in the Greek can be used for prayer. One commentator says it could literally read, Elijah prayed with prayer, or Elijah prayed in his prayer. It's a rather odd statement. Dr. Beeky says, in other words, his prayers were more than a formal exercise. He poured himself into his praying. Bible Bible commentator Alexander Ross says that idiom communicates intensity. A man may pray with his lips and yet not pray with an intense desire of the soul. In other words, there is a such thing as prayerless prayer. This is someone merely going through the motions. It becomes a dry ritual. It's morning time. I I better say my prayers before something bad happens to me. I don't feel right unless I do it. But I simply go through the motions of my list. But there's no intense prayer. There's no earnestness in our prayer. We ought to pray earnestly. Number two, we ought to pray with faith. James chapter 1, verses 5 through 8. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God, who gives to all liberally and without reproach, and it will be given to him. But let him ask in faith with no doubting. 
For he who doubts is like a wave of the sea driven and tossed by the wind. Matthew 21, 22, and whatever things you ask in prayer, believing, you shall receive. This is not just a verse taken out of context by charismatics. This is an actual promise. But we have to understand the context. But we should not ignore these verses. We should not act as though they do not exist. So we, we run to the opposite extreme and say, well, no, God doesn't really answer prayers. He's sovereign. He just controls everything. There's really no point of praying. Dear friends, we ought to pray with faith. Spurgeon said, prayers which are filled with doubt are request for refusals. John Gill said, for whatever is asked in faith agreeable to the will of God, which is contained in his covenant word and promises and makes for his glory and the good of his people shall be given. Perhaps you've heard the story of the church that had a tavern built right next door to it. There were crazy late night parties at this tavern, all type of refuse and nasty nasty things on the church's property. And the church got so fed up that they prayed that God would deal with that tavern. Well, God answered that prayer. He sent a tornado that flattened the tavern and left the church untouched. This tavern owner took the church to court and said they prayed for this, so they didn't need to pay for damages. The Christians said, we didn't do anything wrong. We didn't didn't do anything. All we did was pray. The judge said, this is the strangest case I've ever seen. Unbelievers believing in the power of prayer and Christians not believing in the power of prayer. Dear friends, do we pray with expectation of God to answer? If we don't, like Spurgeon said, we are simply requesting that God refuse to answer our prayers. Number three, we ought to pray with humility and submission to the will of God. Luke 22, 41 through 42. And he, referring to Christ, was withdrawn from them about a stone's throw. And he knelt down and prayed, saying, Father, if it is your will, take this cup away from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. If you read the accounts of Christ's prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane, you do not see more earnest prayer anywhere else. But even in the earnestness of his prayer, he says, Lord, not my will. Yours be done. Humility causes us to submit to God's will. Joseph Hall said, good prayers never come creeping home. I am sure I shall receive either what I ask or what I should ask. Spurgeon said, beggars must not be choosers. And especially they must not be choosers when they have to deal with infinite wisdom and sovereignty. I have asked for so many things in my life that if God would have granted those requests, it would have destroyed me. God is infinitely wise. And he answers our prayers for our good. Number four, we ought to pray with reverence. Genesis 18, 27, Then Abraham answered and said, Indeed, now I who am but dust and ashes have taken it upon myself to speak to the Lord. And he said this while pleading for Sodom. 
John Wesley said, Abraham speaks as one amazed at his own boldness and the liberty God graciously allowed him. Considering God's greatness, he is the Lord and his own meanness, but dust and ashes. Whenever we draw near to God, it becomes us reverently to acknowledge the vast distance that there is between us and him. He is the Lord of glory. We are the worms of the earth. And number five, this sounds like a contradiction. But we have to pray with boldness. We have to pray with reverence, but also with boldness. Hebrews 4.16, let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find help in the time of need. And this boldness indicates freedom of speech. We are adopted as children of God. We call him Father, Father, as children of God. We have freedom to speak to him. That The children of a king have much more boldness of speech or freedom to ask their fathers for things that others would not dare do. Matthew Henry said, in all our approaches to this throne of grace for mercy, we should Come with a humble freedom and boldness, with a liberty of spirit and a liberty of speech. We should ask in faith, nothing doubting. We should come with a spirit of adoption as children to a reconciled God and Father. We are indeed to come with reverence and godly fear, but not with terror and amazement, not as if we were dragged before the tribunal of justice, but kindly invited to the mercy seat where grace reigns and loves to exert and exalt itself towards us. Luther was a man who exemplified this. Praying with reverence and boldness. One time Philip Melanchthon, his right-hand man, stumbled upon him praying. And he went away and wrote down, Gracious God, what faith, what spirit, what reverence, and yet with what holy familiarity did Master Martin pray. Would someone say that of our prayers if they overheard us praying to God? Number six, we ought to pray continuously. 1 Thessalonians 5.17, pray without ceasing. One commentator says the meaning is this, that believers should be daily and often found in the performance of this duty. For as their wants daily return upon them and they are called to fresh service and further trials and exercises, they have need of more grace, strength, and assistance and therefore should daily pray for it. And besides certain times in the closet and in the family in which they should attend the throne of grace, there is such a thing as mental prayer, praying in the heart, private ejaculations of the soul which may be sent up to heaven while the man is engaged in the affairs of life. We should be in prayer constantly. It's like shooting little arrows up into heaven all throughout our day. Lord, help me with this. Help me with that. Lord, give me wisdom in this situation. Number seven, we ought to pray everywhere. First Timothy 2, 8. I desire, therefore, that men pray everywhere. Matthew Henry said... Now, under the gospel, prayer is not to be confined to any one particular house of prayer, but men must pray everywhere. No place is amiss for prayer. No place more acceptable to, acceptable to God than another. Pray everywhere. We must pray in our closets, pray in our families, pray at our meals, pray when we are on journeys, and pray in the solemn assemblies, whether more public or private. And number eight, we ought to pray 
in everything. Philippians 4, 6, be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your request be made known to God. We must, as one man says, not only keep up state at times of prayer, but we must pray upon every particular emergency and everything by prayer. When anything burdens our spirits, we must ease our minds by prayer. And our affairs are, when, our, when our affairs are perplexed or distressed, we must seek direction and support. In every situation, we ought to pray. No request is too small to take to God. No request is too large to take to God. We should pray small prayers. Lord, give me wisdom in this conversation. Help me in my work with what I'm doing right now. Help me not to be offended by what this person said to me. But we must also pray big prayers. Lord, heal this person of cancer. Lord, bring about reformation and revival in our nation and all over the world. Lord, cause abortion and other sins to be outlawed in every country. Or how about, Lord, turn Holland into a Christian city? Big prayers. Consider those great words of John Newton. Come, my soul, thy suit prepare. Jesus loves to answer prayer. He himself has bid thee pray and therefore will not say thee nay. What does Newton say after that? Thou art coming to a king. Not a peasant, a king. Large petitions with thee bring. For his grace and power are such that none could ever ask too much. Oh, dear friends, what if we lived that way? Number, seven, number nine, sorry. Pray diligently. Luke 18. Then he spoke a parable to them. That men ought always to pray and not lose heart. Saying there was... In a certain city, a judge who did not fear God nor regard man. Now there was a widow in that city, and she came to him saying, Get justice for me from my adversary. And he would not for a while. But afterward he said within himself, Though I do not fear God nor regard man, yet because this widow troubles me, I will avenge her. Lest by her continual coming she weary me. Then the Lord said, Hear what the unjust judge said. And shall God not avenge his own elect, who cry out day and night to him, though he bears long with them? The Lord gives us these two parables, which essentially says, pray earnestly. Pray without ceasing. Beg God. He says if you go to an unjust judge, if you, if you just bother him persistently he may give you justice because he's tired of your request how much more if you go to a good God who loves you and cares for you and you are persistent in your prayers will God grant you the desires of your heart that are after his Spurgeon said some mercies are not given to us except in answer to importunate prayer 
There are blessings which, like ripe fruit, drop into your hand the moment you touch the bow. But there are others which require you to shake the tree again and again until you make it rock with the vehemence of your exercise. For then only will the fruit fall down. Dear friends, is God only answering a request that doesn't take much persistence? Are we grabbing hold to God and saying, I will not let you go until you answer me. I will not let you go until you bless me. Do we wrestle with God through the night? Do you know anything of that? Wrestling with God about something. The Puritans would talk about suing God for his promises. They, they take him to court, as it were. God, you, you promised this, and I'm holding you to this. This is your word. Dear friends, do we wrestle with God? Do we know about persistent, importunate prayer? Or do we give up after praying one time for something? Dear God, it, it, He wants us. He desires us to be persistent. Maybe you're praying for something God has not answered. Perhaps he has not answered because he would be most glorified by you persistently asking that thing again and again and again and not letting him go because you are showing that that there is no other way. Lord, I am dependent upon you. There is no other way. Consider that the unanswered prayers in your life may be unanswered for that very reason. You are not persistent. You give up. Difference, we ought to pray like kids. If you, if you have little kids, you know that no never means no. You, you, you tell your four-year-old no, and then he, he's like a lawyer. He has every reason why you need to say yes. And he can, if you give him a reason why you're saying no, he can figure out another reason to go around that. But, but in his mind, no, no is simply not an option for him at that time. We ought to be like that in our prayers. Lord, if it be in your will. But I'm going to beg you until I know it's not in your will. In conclusion, I want to leave you with a question. A question asked by Dr. Beakey in his book, Taking Hold of God, which I highly recommend that you read. The question is this. Is prayer the means by which we storm the throne of grace and take the kingdom by violence? Is it a missile that crushes satanic powers or is it like a harmless toy that Satan sleeps beside? Those are two vastly different prayer lives. Is it a missile? Is your prayer a missile that crushes satanic powers or a harmless toy that the devil sleeps beside? Martin Luther said he always prayed out loud. One of the reasons was so that the devil could hear him. Do 
Dear friend, we are in a spiritual battle. We are fighting battles right now in our homes, in our churches, in the political realm. We are fighting battles that are not against flesh and blood. Do we understand that? And one of our greatest weapons of warfare is prayer. Dear friends, pick up this weapon and use it. There are cultural battles. Things that we call spiritual, things that we call political battles, for example, in our country. These are not political battles. These are spiritual battles. Fighting for the, the legalization of abortion is a spiritual battle. The fact that people want to, to kill little babies and mutilate kids who think they are the opposite sex. This is spiritual warfare. Dear friends, flesh and blood is useless. Do we understand that? The nature of this battle is spiritual, and we have a weapon that is powerful. Dear God, may we use it. My prayer for this church is that you would pray like John Knox, Lord, give me Holland. Give us Holland or we die. May you pray bold, big prayers like that, that God would turn this place into a, a Christian city. Do you desire that? Do you desire for the name of Christ to be all over this city, this country, the world? Pray for it. Do you, do you hear the, the, the earnestness in Knox's prayer? Lord, give me Scotland or I die. That is persistence. May you be praying for your city in that way. And may the Lord answer your prayers in a mighty way so that the wicked fear the prayers of this church more than any army. What a testimony. What a testimony that people would literally fear the prayers of John Knox. Dear friends, does the wicked fear the prayers of this church? Pray boldly, earnestly. Pray big prayers. And watch God be glorified through answering those prayers for you. The words of that hymn one more time. You are coming to a king. Large petitions with thee bring. Large petitions. For his grace and power. He's omnipotent. Are such that none could ever ask too much. Do you believe that? If there was a billionaire and he said, 
ask me for however much money you want, and I'll give it to you. Would you say, well, give me a dollar? Probably not. God loves for us to pray big prayers. We're not going to overburden God with big prayers. Dear friends, don't limit God's power in your mind by, by only asking small prayers. Well, well, God can't really turn Holland into a Christian city. God can't stop the wicked in this nation from doing what they're doing. Dear friends, read your history. Read your Bible. And see the mighty hand of God at work. Dear friends, let us be men and women of prayer. Let us pray. Oh, dear God, we thank you. Lord, that you not only hear our prayers, but that you answer them according to your good and your perfect will. Father, help us to be men and women of prayer. Help us to be bold, to be earnest, to be persistent in our prayers, to pray big prayers, Lord, and to give you the glory for all the answers. Father, we do ask that you would bless this church, that you would cause it to thrive and to be healthy and to grow. That the Christian influence from this church would spread all throughout this city. Dear God, may you bring about revival in this area and all over. That great multitudes would turn to you for salvation and that you would be glorified through it. Father, we ask that you would put an end to all of the, the sins that are being promoted as good in our nation. Dear God, you are powerful. Put an end to it and be glorified through it. In your son's name we pray. Amen.